who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So today, as we come to the end of this series, we get to talk about the life of the world to come. Aren't you looking forward to the life of the world to come? Yeah, that's about the, expect, uh, the expected response. I, I know that we're in church, and I know that you think you're supposed to say yes, but we uh, generally say around here, you don't have to fake anything. And the truth is, after 40 years of doing this, I know most of you, the answer really is, yes, I, I am looking forward to the life of the world to come, but not right now. I really don't want the life of the world to come yet. In fact, the, the more comfortable you are in your life, the more you like your life, the more happy you are about your life, the more you've just got relationships the way you want it, the more you've just improved some things, the more things are going pretty much the way you want it to. The life of the world to come, I mean, when you think about what you've heard about the life of the world to come, going to the life of the world to come you just heard described is way better than the alternative, and you do want that, but not today. You don't really want it. You don't really want the life of the world to come. Uh, unless you're suffering, or unless you happen to be in Ukraine today, or you happen to be in, a, uh, in Israel, or in Gaza today. You don't really think much about the life of the world to come unless everything in your life isn't exactly the way that you want it to do, or you're in some kind of position where you, you know this life isn't going to get you where you want. The life of the world to come, it just doesn't hold much attraction to us. We're just not all that interested. But that's where this statement we've been looking at for the last few weeks, that's where it ends up. For those of you who I haven't met yet, my name is Ed. I'm one of the pastors around here, and we're really glad that you came to be a part of this. You're right at the end of a series that we've been doing called Rooted, where we've been looking at this ancient text called the Nicene Creed. And really, it's just a helpful kind of thing to draw us back to the truth of what Christianity is. And the reason we decided to study this over the last few weeks is because in a day like ours, at a time where everybody is debating what's true and you can't really know what's true and you don't know whether the lady on TikTok's true or the dude on YouTube's true or you can't really decide what's true or what's up or what's down, when it comes down to what you really need to know about life when you really need to know something, you want to know that the truth that you're holding on to is rooted in something. And so we've said, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, our faith isn't based on what the latest teaching is by somebody who stands on a platform like me. Instead, it goes back 1,700 years. It goes back to the very beginning of the whole thing. And so we've been studying it line by line. We believe that there is one God who made everything you see, maker of heaven and earth, things that are seen and things that are unseen. We believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's truly God. God from God, light from light. He's truly human. He's both God and man. In addition to that, we believe there's the Holy Spirit that lives inside of those who have fallen. He's the one that gives life. He brings life to all things. We believe that one day He will bring life to us from our dead bodies, and that's where we come to this thing today. And you'll notice, if you've been with us the whole time, I said at the beginning of this, as a person who loves music, I tend to think about this creed really as having uh, several verses. It's more like a, a song, and it begins with the same hook at the beginning of every verse. It's, it's we believe, we believe, we believe, we believe. But then you come to this one, 
and you'll notice that the writers changed the hook. It's not we believe, it's we look. We look for the life of the world to come. We look for the, the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And so today we need to talk about what is it we're looking for? What exactly is it that the Bible says we're looking for? What is it that Christians for the last 2,000 years have been looking for? And so that's what I want to talk to you about. What is it that we look for? What does that that we're looking for, what does it tell us about the God that we serve? What does that have to do with anything that has to do with you today if the life of the world to come doesn't start this afternoon? What does it have to do with anything happening right now? So to begin with, what is the life of the world to come? And it gets at two things. There's first, there's bodily resurrection and there's the new creation. And what does that even mean? Well, if you were here again, and I'll just take you back to when we talked about Jesus and his resurrection, and we talked about the bodily resurrection. Here's the way that Paul says it when he writes in Philippians 3.20. He says, we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we eagerly awaiting for him to return as our Savior. Now, just so you know, in that English translation, which is more for our era, in the earliest English translations, they translate it more directly from what Paul actually said. It's a little clumsier for us, but the way it was said was, we look forward to a Savior who comes from there. In other words, we aren't citizens of this place, which we've talked about a lot. We're, this culture is not our home. We're citizens of another kingdom, another culture, run by our Savior, and he is coming from there for us. Paul continues, he will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he brings everything under his control. Now, I just want to say this is interesting because when I've talked to even followers of Christ over the last, again, 40 years of doing this thing, uh, I think for most of us, we have the wrong end game. We think about the end of of things in a wrong kind of way. In fact, we have the wrong end of Christianity in mind. We often imagine like this. I put my trust in Jesus, and then one day, when I die, my soul will just leave my body, and I'll go to be with Jesus. But Paul says, no, our body is going to be transformed. And one of the writings he gives to the church in Corinth, he says this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits or the first crop of a great harvest of all who die. Now, you don't have to be a farmer to know that if somebody says there's a first crop, that means there's going to be another crop, that there's a second crop, that the first crop is like the second crop. And so what Paul is saying that when Jesus resurrected from the dead, which is the hope of Christians, is our whole faith is based on this, that what's going to happen is that when we die and are resurrected, we will be like him, which Paul says our bodily resurrection will take place at his coming. Now, again, one of the things I think we get wrong is that we get the timeline too short. It's something like I'm born, I put my trust in Jesus, I follow Jesus, I die, and then I go to heaven. Or some of you uh, who believe in this odd thing called the rapture, which, by the way, isn't in the Bible. In fact, wasn't even a teaching of the church. I don't have time to talk about this, but it's a brand new thing. And I mean brand new in the last hundred years. And nobody talked about a rapture uh, for the last 1,600 years before that. It's not, in the, it's not in the Scripture. We have this idea, I'm born, I put my trust in Jesus, and then we all zoom away, and then God destroys the earth or something like that. But what the Bible says 
is there's a much longer timeline than that. It's I'm born, I put my trust in Jesus, I follow him, I die, and there's life after death with Jesus. And then Jesus returns, and there's life after life after death. In fact, way, the, one of the New Testament writer, uh, uh, theologians that I really love, a guy named N.T. Wright puts it, is most Christians never think about what will be life after life after death. We often think it's just life after death. In this unbodied state where I float around in a crowd, on a cloud with Jesus. But our bodies are going to be transformed. That is, when Jesus returns, when Jesus comes back, we will be transformed. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Some will say, how are the dead raised? What, will, what body will they have when they come back? And I know, again, because I've talked to a bunch of you, you have the same question. Ed, will I have wrinkles when I come back? At what age are we going to be? I mean, what are they going to do with my tattoos? Will I have all my tattoos or just the more recent tattoos? I have some I don't like. Can I get rid of those tattoos in the life of the world to come? And what color will my hair be? Because I don't remember what color my hair was. Does Jesus know what color my hair was? To which Paul says in verse 36, what a foolish question. <laughs> when you put a seed in the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. Verse 42, in the same way it is with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised, our bodies will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they'll be raised in glory. They're buried in weakness, but they'll be raised in strength. They're buried as natural human bodies, but they'll be raised as spiritual bodies. Now, what does that mean? What is a spiritual body? So what is a spiritual body? There are a lot of theologians who talk about this, but the best thing we can do is to look at Jesus. In fact, the Apostle Paul links our future hope as Christians to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He says that for those in Christ, we can expect that everything that happened to Jesus will happen to you. So what was Jesus' resurrection body like? Well, the scriptures tell us it looked like the same body, but was also somehow different. There was a lot that he could physically do in the same way as before, but also some new things as well. And we don't know much more than that, but one scholar suggests a way to think about this. It's an imperfect metaphor, but I think it's helpful. He says, maybe the difference between our earthly bodies and our future spiritual bodies is like the difference between a diesel-powered submarine and a nuclear submarine. They're sort of the same, but because the spiritual body is powered by a different engine, the Spirit of God, it demands a total reconstitution. But even though there's a lot that's unclear, here's what we know that early Christians wanted to be clear about. The resurrection of the dead is not an escape from the body. It's the redemption and glorification of the body. And the early Christians had to make this clear because of an idea going around their time that has sort of had a resurgence on our world. It's called Gnosticism. The general idea of Gnosticism is that our bodies are less important or even sinful compared to the spirits that exist within us. The way it's often said in our world is something like, you're not a human being having a spiritual experience, you're a spiritual being having a human experience. But what the Bible says is that God made your body and God breathed his breath into you. Our bodies matter. All of the stuff we wrestle with, body shame, the abuse of the body, the breaking down of the body, the diseases in the body, God fully intends to redeem what he created. 
If you struggle with your body in any way, the Christian answer to you is not to say, oh, well, don't worry, you're gonna escape this body one day. The Christian answer is that the God who made your body will redeem it in such a way that it's glorified and made whole. But it's not just your body, he will redeem all of creation. This is what the writers of the New Testament call the new creation. The actual translation of the Nicene Creed is not to refer to the new creation as the world to come, but actually the age to come. And this is important because often we think about our future hope as a place. It's not here, but there. Not this world, but heaven. But the earliest Christians didn't talk about a place or space. They talked about time, the age to come. We've already read the words of Jesus' disciple John in his vision of the age to come. When he sees the end of the age, he doesn't see Christians leaving this world and going up to heaven. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down. Notice that in the new creation, we don't go up. Heaven comes down. Heaven is not some alternative place to this life, but heaven is the restoration of all things in this life to the way God intended. It's the final healing, the final restoration of all of existence. And once again, we have to think back to Jesus as the first fruit of the age to come. So in Jesus' incarnation, heaven came down to earth. In his body, heaven is here. But Paul says, when Jesus was raised, he was the first crop, the first fruit of those who will be resurrected. Paul adds, as in Adam, all suffered death. In Christ, all are made alive. So when we talk about new creation, it's the idea that at the end of this age, God will redeem, renew, and restore all things. It's not just our spirit floating away to a distant place and leaving our body behind. He is also renewing our body. When heaven comes down, new creation will be perfected. A physical world where people will hug and dance and sing and eat, which I'm very much looking forward to that part. And maybe I'll even be a better dancer. I don't know. But here's what I'm confident of. Every one of our longings will be satisfied. You and I are longing for a world that we've never had where justice truly reigns. Maybe you're longing for a body you've never had or a family you've never had or you've lost or maybe a home you can rest in. Whatever it is, the day is coming where all of our longings will be satisfied and we will rest with God forever. The important thing for us to hold on to is that God loves everything he's created, your body included, this world included. So that leads me to what I said I'd talk about next, which is what does that tell you about God? What does this idea of what God is going to do in the life of the world to come, what do you learn about God from that? Well, I would suggest to you the most important thing for you to grab out of that is that God, He doesn't break His promise. God doesn't give up on anything He created. God doesn't trash any project. God doesn't abandon people. Ultimately, it means that God is way more faithful than anyone that you can imagine. God is more faithful than the person that's been most faithful to you. God is completely faithful over and over and over again. If you read the Bible, you see the fact that God makes promises to people and God fulfills every single promise. From the beginning of the Bible to the very end of the Bible, there are these people, God's people. You know, the church would be considered God's people today, but in the beginning it was... Everything gets off track with Adam and Eve, and God wants to get the story back on track, and so he chooses a man named Abraham, and he says, Abraham, Abraham, who, by the way, is the father of the Jewish nation and the Muslims and Christianity, he, he's a great man who God said to him, I'll make your name great, and all people for all generations will speak your name, even that promise. Here we are, and even before you came today, you had heard the name Abraham. 
Abraham, he says, I will make from your family a great nation and everyone will know your name and from you, the whole world will be saved. And Abraham says, awesome. And then he goes right out and instead of keeping his covenant with God, he goes to another country where he's threatened by the king who the king thinks his wife's attractive and Abraham, instead of saying to the guy, no, she's my wife, he says to his wife, hey, I'm going to have to lie and tell him you're my sister and you're going to have to go be with him. Now, that's one of the conversations I wish it had been included in the Bible. How did he say that to her? And how did she decide to stay with him after that? Because just so you know, he did it twice. And after that, God says, okay, I'll continue to be faithful to the promise I made. I'll continue to count you as my people. I'll continue to track with you. In fact, Jesus comes to the planet as an Israelite through the family of Abraham. And all the story of, of Israel, it gets fulfilled in Jesus. Every promise God makes to Israel, he fulfills in Christ. Who does that? Who just continually has promise after promise after promise after promise after promise broken to him. And yet he keeps every promise he makes. It's our God, our Father. Our Father, Son, and Spirit keeps every promise He makes. And maybe for you, you're here this morning and you're like, but how about to me? Will God be faithful to me? I mean, you don't know what I've done or what, where I've gone or what I'm hoping for or how... Many times, not only have I broken promises to God or promises that I made to people, I haven't kept all the standards I've set for myself. Is there a limit? Does God finally say to people what I've heard that God says to people like, get out of my house? Because some of us had parents that said that to us. Does God ever get to a place where he reaches a limit and he doesn't want to be with people anymore? Do I have to fear that at some point, if I mess up enough, God will be completely done with me. And again, we turn to Jesus, who's the best expression of what we know God is like. And Jesus makes clear to people, as long as you turn your feet toward me and you begin to walk, even if you stumble and fall, if you get back up and you walk, I will be faithful. I will not break my promise to you. God does not scrap his projects. God does not abandon his people. In fact, the scripture you heard read just before I began to talk a little bit ago, John said it this way, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, God's eternal dwelling place is now among the people. Again, something most of us miss. It does not say the people are among God. It's not God, we are going to God's place. God is coming to our place. He made this place so he could dwell with us in the beginning, and he's coming back to dwell with us. He will come and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and they and will be their God. He will wipe every tear away from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things, the old age, the way that we've known for generations, the way the world works. It will all pass away. He who is seated on the throne says, I am making everything new. Now notice he didn't say I'm making new things, like there aren't going to be unicorns. I'm making all things new. God isn't going to come to the planet and go, I don't know who made this place, but it's crap. 
This is God's place. He loves it. God's going to restore everything. He's taking all things and he's making it new like it was in the beginning. It was said by Donnie in the video, it's in a way you've never seen before because what we know about is that when God made the place, it was good. Atmosphere, good. Climate, good. Birds in the air, fish in the sea, good. Insects on the land, good. And animals, good. People, good. You know what else? Work was good. You worked and you weren't frustrated by it. Work was, you could accomplish something, which what you were made for, and you did it with God, and it was good. In fact, the only thing that wasn't good was for man to be alone, so God created other people so we could be together. And just like in that, that was good. There was no shame. There was no shaming. There was no guilt. There was no fighting. There was no war. It was just good. The only thing that will remain in the life and the world to come, it will all be good. I heard Kyle Eidelman uh, say that when he read that scripture, one of the times he was reading it, he decided he would just add on to, to John's list. And I read his list, and I thought it was really good, but then I thought, I want to add my own list because I've seen so much that I just don't want to see anymore. And because I have the microphone, I'm going to read you my list. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. We already said that. There will be no more cancer. There will be no more sitting in the cancer waiting room hoping that the one you love is okay. There'll be no more heart disease or cerebral palsy. There'll be no more birth defects. There'll be no more learning disabilities or worry or anxiety. There'll be no more divorce or rejection or loneliness. There'll be no more feeling uninvited, standing on the outside of the crowd feeling like you don't belong. There'll be no more arguments over stupid things that you won't remember what you argued about the next day. There'll be no more suffering, no more crime, which means there'll be no more police, which means there'll be no more injustice system that we call just. There'll be no more military. There'll be no more PTSD. There'll be no more depression. There'll be no wheelchairs. There'll be no sleeplessness. There'll be no apathy, abuse, radiation, racism, broken homes, anxiety, self-hate, self-abuse. There'll be no more drugs. And I'm not done because I kept going. There won't be any more fear. There won't be any more addiction. There won't be any more self-consciousness or purposelessness. There'll be no more locks on doors, no pornography, no shame, no blame, no condemnation, no more of all the things that make this world so incredibly hard. Now do you want the world to come? We can have confidence that all of that is true because our God does not break any promise. He does not scrap any project. He does not abandon his people. He is making all things new. And I think if we could catch it, it'd change how you think about God. And many of you have a terrible image of God. No wonder you live far from him. And it'd change how we live. And if you're like me, you just can't wait. And so I actually want to give you just a few moments to allow some of what's been said to sink into you and reflect on it. And so I've asked Sawyer to come and lead us in a moment of prayer and reflection about this.
so what makes you look forward to the world to come? What is longing within you? What point of heartbreak or grief or loss or failure aches in your soul? What can you not wait to see made new in the fullness of God's new creation? I think we should pause right now and take a moment and talk to God about that. And in the quiet, ask him to allow his promise of a new creation to meet you in whatever is within your soul in this moment. Before we pray, let's, um, let's read these words of scripture together. And when you see the words in bold, read those aloud with me. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be them, with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So first, talk to God about what from this old order of things are you looking forward to being done away with in the fullness of his new creation? Let's do that now. Continue to read the words of Scripture together. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Now talk to God about what you're looking forward to being made new in the fullness of his creation. Talk to him about that. who love you and your kingdom. Help us to keep our hearts and minds fixed on this hope as we go through the heartbreak and pain and brokenness of this life. Help us to meet you in those pain and brokenness so we may bring your love and healing to them. In the name of Jesus, amen. 
So there's just one final part for me to talk about, about the life of the world to come, and it is how does it impact us right now if the life of the world to come doesn't begin right now? So let me start this way. The very last scripture you read out loud there was God saying, I am making all things new. God, who loves all things, is present tense, making all things new. God is, right now, making all things new. Beginning with me and with you, if you're willing, if you want it. We don't really have to wonder about what God's doing while we wait on the life of the world to come. We know what God is doing in this age. God is at work in and through His church. God is at work in and through us. God is at work in us and through us if we are willing. We know that because it's present tense. But the real question is, are you satisfied with this? Do you not see God at work because the truth is you're pretty satisfied with this? I mean, are most of your prayers really about how to make this slightly better? Do you not get to participate in what God is doing in this world because really you like you and what you have, but you just want it slightly different. God is at work. He's making all things new. You don't have to wait for the age to come for the renewal of all things. Several weeks ago when Jason was talking to us about God the Father who makes everything seen and unseen, he took us through the prayer where Jesus taught us about his Father. Many of you know the words of this. So when I get to the point that I pause, I just want you to say the next word. It says, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on, on earth. May your will be done on earth just like it is right now in heaven. God's willing to bring about the renewal of things beginning with you if you can just stop being so satisfied and want to be a part of it. I'm pretty convinced after being a part of this for a while that God is breaking through all around us in history right these days in the most mundane moments that most of us miss because they're only seen by God and the person involved with them and the person that they are serving at the moment. It often happens in really important moments in history and in this age but people don't notice it because they think that God's at work on platforms like this. I was recently talking with a newer friend of mine who's really trying to put his life back together, who I'm trying to help him work through some things that he and I both have messed up at times in our life. And he's beginning to get it. And we're sitting talking. He says to me that he had lunch the other day with a homeless man. And I want you to notice exactly what I said. He had lunch with a homeless man, not he gave money to a homeless man so the man could eat. He had lunch with a homeless man. See, 
giving money to somebody that has a need is a really good thing. It does help them. And boy, does that need to take place in our world in big ways. But being and having lunch with a homeless man, it changes you too. Because you look at a person and you say, you too are made in the image of God. I see you. You too have value and worth. We are the same. And in that moment, the age of this world dies a little bit. The age of the world to come begins to come forward. And God begins to renew the way it's supposed to be between human beings. When you, you mourn with somebody who mourns and you don't have to, when you rejoice with somebody who rejoices and you don't have a reason to rejoice, in those moments, the prince of the power of this air dies a little bit and the renewal of all things begins to take place in this moment, in this age. But do you really want that? Do you want to see it? Do you want to bring about it? Because it has to come about through you. It happens with a teacher I know who begins every day by spending the first moments before anybody shows up praying that students will somehow see God, not the subject they're teaching. In that moment, the kingdom of this world, it says it's about achieving and growing. It dies a little bit. And the age to come breaks through. It's dignifying somebody. It's having a conversation with somebody. It's looking somebody in the eye. It's remembering a name. It's showing kindness. It's showing up. It's forgiving someone when you don't have to. It's going the extra mile. The question is, what are you waiting for? If you want it, you can be a part of it. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth. And if you're wondering where to start and where to look for Jesus in this world, Jesus gave us a list. Look at it. We'll, we'll put it up. He said, you want to find me in this world? Look among the hungry. Look among the thirsty. Look at the stranger. Look at the naked. Look at the sick. Look at the imprisoned. Look at the orphan. Look at the widow. Look at those that are on the margins that nobody pays any attention to. Welcome them in. And when you're with them, you will be with me. That's why I love the spirit of our church that's been a part of us for a long time now. People have been around here for a while know that we've tried to work really hard to be mindful of people who are on the edges, who've blown their life apart and family won't have much to do with them or they've messed up so much that they don't know where to go or they need something and the church often doesn't look to them. But it's not just opening our hearts to them. It's opening our lives to them and sharing lives with them. Andy Crouch says this about the way that Christians should be. He said, we need to become people who don't just critique and withdraw. I don't know if you've noticed Christians over the last few years on all the social media things, and it just sickens me that what we have become about our current age is we critique it and then we withdraw from it. We are really good at criticizing what's happening and then pulling back. He says, 
Christians, we need to become people who don't just critique and redraw. Our job is to mend what is broken and tend what is good. We are to be the menders and tenders, which if you didn't know is the original job that God gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. Take care of this, have dominion over it, expand Eden to the whole place. Can, can we mend and tend? Can we take care of what's broken instead of just pointing it out? And some of you in this moment, you're thinking, I'd love to, but I am the thing that's broken. I'm what's broken. Well, that's okay. But you're going to have to be willing to say that to someone who could come around and give you help. And thank God you are in a place where the great physician is here. He is here. And his people are here. But you will have to make yourself known so we can bind you up and help you. Maybe you're thinking, my marriage is broken. Well, that's okay. But you're going to have to get some help. Mend what is broken. Tend to what is good. Cultivate what's good. As we look for the resurrection from the dead and the life of the world to come. As we as Christians have to stop looking at the world and and saying such terrible things that we think we're saying something out of the Bible when we say something, well, the world's just going to hell, but thank God we'll go to heaven one day. We say, we say in the name of Jesus, now on earth as it is in heaven, and today like it will be one day. We don't look forward to the day to come without looking to be the agents of the King of Kings in this place on earth as it is in heaven, and now as it can be then, and living now as it will be then, the life of the world to come begins to break through a little bit. The Apostle Paul wrote these words, these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. For our church, this whole series has been about faith, about what we believe, and trying to help you get rooted deeply in what is the historical truth, not what somebody has said just recently, but what has historically been the faith that has changed our culture. What we believe as Christians. That's good because today it all culminates in the hope that we have of what God is going to do. But the faith and the hope that we have is just the platform that God has given us so we can love because the only thing that lasts is love. And we are God's agents to bring it about. Because we live in the name of the one who gave his life for us and loved us. This is how we know what love is. Jesus gave his life for us. And so every week we come together and we remember his sacrifice by taking the meal of communion together. And Sawyer's going to come and lead us in that right now.